Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Our search continues for the answers, Bill. Uh, joining me, as always, Bill Fleckerstein. Mate, how are you? I'm doing just fine, thank you. And uh, given that our prior um, podcast was with Russell Napier, who had a, a, has a rather um, um, radical viewpoint now compared to where other folks have been regarding inflation, it's just wonderful to be able to talk to Lacey Hunt, who's been... Uh, so right on the other side of things. So it's 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 going to be great to have these two podcasts sandwiched next to each other. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and so uh, our guest this week, as Bill just said, is Lacey Hunt, who uh, has been uh, extraordinarily right, extraordinarily strident about his views for, I mean, to my mind, a couple of decades now. I mean, he's the one guy, three decades, four decades, Maybe, who knows? No, four, yeah. four and a half I mean, when he listed, yeah, a long, long time. It's, it's so a while. It's an amazing batting average. Um and and no matter no matter what arguments have been put up against him and his partner Van Hoisington, uh, you know these guys have stayed solid. They've stayed firm. They've stayed resolute, uh, and they've stuck to their guns. And and dear God, they've been right this whole time. So I think what Bill and I want to try and find out from Lacey is: um, are, are they still there? Are they still on that on that bandwagon? Do they see any signs that might shake them off it? Um, and if so, what might they be? Uh, uh, so what, as, as Bill said, what better? What better bookend to our last podcast with Russell Napier than than to talk to Lacey Hunt? So, why don't Let's we do that? Let's let it roll. Let's do it. Lacey, hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you, Grant? I'm I'm very well. And uh, let me introduce you to Bill Fleckerson. You you haven't met before. I'm surprised to hear. Nice to meet nice you, Lacey. Nice I was I was lucky enough to have dinner uh, uh, beers with Van and a couple of Jim Grant and a couple other guys one time. I was speaking at a Shad Row conference. And uh, that was a real treat. And I, obviously, you guys are on the same page. But I've been running money about as long as you guys have. So uh, I, re- I remember your your firm uh, back in the '80s and '90s when Van first started making his calls. That's pretty impressive. Well, 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 I've been in the business 52 years. Wow, 52. I, I went into the Federal Reserve with my brand new PhD when I was 26 in 1969. And Arthur Burns was chairman of the Fed. I was at the Dallas Fed. Bill Coldwell was president. And when I left um, the Dallas Fed uh, to go to Chase Econometrics to work on large scale models with Mike Evans, Chase was a subsidiary of uh, Chase Econometrics, was a subsidiary of Chase Manhattan, which was run by David Rockefeller. Who I did a number of projects for during my tenure there, so I've I've been around. <laughs> you, you you have been around, and you know the the, the amazing thing, Lacey, is um, and this is something that Bill and I really wanted to, to to pick your brains about, and that is of those fifty two years, you know, a, a big part of that time, uh, you guys, you and Van have have had this bet on essentially, which uh, is a rodeo ride that so many people have been shaken off 
uh, along the way. And you guys have what Bill and I were chatting privately before this. What, what we think is arguably one of the greatest trades of the century um, that you guys have managed to put on. And so, uh, yeah, I know Bill had a couple of questions that he wanted to ask you about that. So, I'm, but rather than try and paraphrase, I'm going to let him ask them himself. Okay, let's. I, I want to tell you all something you may not. Van was in the seventies. Van was at Texas Commerce. I was at Fidelity in Philadelphia, which which was the largest bank in Philadelphia. And I was running the commingle fixed income fund in the trust department, and he was doing the same at Texas Commerce. And um, both of us independently of each other uh, put went into cash equivalents and set out the bear market of the 70s. In fact, there have been quite a few articles uh, about the fact that um, that I call the bear market of the 70s and the bull market since then. Not an easy thing to do. No. There were many people don't realize that there was about a 40-month bear market, many, many bear market in the late 80s, and we sidestepped that as well. So, so in other words, what you're just saying is, uh, so that's a that was a really tricky wicket to, to step around, you know, the, being in the cash for the really nasty bear market and then getting, uh, you know, the sideways down stuff in the late 80s. And then from, from 90 till now, you know, it's hasn't been smooth sailing, but one of the things I'm fascinated uh, to try to understand from a money management standpoint is over that, you know, basically 30 years of being dead right about this, forgetting the, the, the sidestepping you did before, were there very many times along the way where you guys had to scratch your heads and say, gee, could this be changing? Are we still going to get it right? Did you get, did you get shaken much at all? Or was it pretty easy to just stay with it? I'm just fascinated to know what it's, like behind the scenes for to do something so well, so right for so long. <laughs> well, the discipline was always the same. The approach was always the same. And what, what Van and I have um, said to our clients repeatedly is that we're going to take a, a um, multi-year horizon here, at least three years or longer, and that we're going to stay focused on on the the trends and inflation. Now we're treasury investors only, duration managers. Not many people do that, and we we had an advantage that that the uninformed don't understand. So there is no standard measure of value for the stock market. There are many competing measures, but there's none that prevails. In the bond market, there is a standard. And it's known as the Fisher equation, and the uh, the Fisher equation was was developed in his famous book in 1930, Theory of Interest, and it says that the risk-free long rate is equal to the real rate plus expected inflation. And so, if you're able to to capture the the, the trends in economic real economic growth over time and the inflationary environment, you're going to be on the right side. And over that time period, the real growth rate was coming down and the inflation rate was coming down. Now, um, since 1990, there were 10 years that, that we didn't look too smart, but we had, we had tried to prepare our clients for that. And we had said to them repeatedly that if you, if you are, want us to manage from quarter to quarter or year to year, then don't hire us. If the volatility bothers you, don't hire us do yourself and do us a favor because Van and I both strongly believe contrary to the prevailing view 
is that the short term is not predictable. There are too many extraneous factors, unimportant factors. Uh, in addition, the market looks at all these indicators but does not know how to weight them. And that's extremely critical. Also, the market does not understand that economic numbers do not come out in a vacuum. And that one of the most important um, points for evaluating the market are initial conditions. Uh, economies don't start at the same place every year. And so you have to be able to discern the initial, the initial conditions and you have to understand the weights. And, and Van and I both had training in econometrics. We, together we, we fit many thousands of functions, consumption, investment, inflation functions, interest rate functions. And, and so we have an understanding of what's important and what's not, but we never lose sight of the initial conditions. And we had the, the standard of the Fisher equation and we stayed with it. We still stay with it. And, um, that's, that's, that's how we did what we did. And we, we took 10 pretty bad years, but they didn't matter. They didn't matter at all, really. Lacey, was that 10 collectively or, or, or you didn't have 10? For the whole time period. Right. You didn't have 10 bad ones back to back. I, I can't, never had right. more than one bad year. Right. Okay. Oh, that's what I, that's what I kind of assumed. But never I was more than one bad year. I got it. Was any one of them, uh, given you, you, your, your thought process that you've shared a tiny bit with there, was there any one of those periods trickier than the other where you, where you had to actually wring your hands a little bit or did, did it not rise to that level? Well, we always wring our hands, and we all <laughs> we always do our due diligence, uh -huh. and we we relied upon our own understanding. And um, I think I think that we've stayed abreast of the peer reviewed research. Uh, we realize that economics is a social science; it's not a physical science. But the uh, but there is there is very important research that continues. Uh, at the scholastic institutions and at other uh, research facilities. And we try to stay abreast of it. And um, I would have to say that probably the most important understanding that we had um, was that, is that, is that we are very familiar with the economic theory, but we also have done a great deal of hypothesis testing to sort out a uh, valuable economic theory from uh, economic theory that does not matter. And I would say that there were uh, a couple of, a couple of things that were provided uh, important guidance to us. Um, number one, we have felt that uh, contrary to the conventional wisdom, uh, debt accelerations do not lead to higher interest rates that they they may lead to higher interest rates for some transitory period of time but debt accelerations uh are nothing more than an increase in current spending and in exchange for uh decline in future spending unless that uh that that debt is productive in the sense that it generates an income stream to repay principal and interest and um so we we had we had felt and you can see this in our writings that we had rejected the notion of a, of a, of a Keynesian um, uh, multiplier on government activity. Um, when I left uh, graduate school in, in uh, 1969, uh, there were a couple of propositions that I strongly believed in. 
they were they were both key to understanding monetary policy, and both of them together said that monetary and fiscal policy are powerful. The first proposition is that there is a powerful government expenditure multiplier. Uh, when I first started studying economics, uh, the expenditure multiplier was was between four and five. Um, today, even the the extreme Keynesians will not argue that it's much more than one. But um, I would say by the late 1990s, certainly by the early 2000s, uh, we felt that the government expenditure multiplier was slightly negative. In other words, if you engaged in a dollar of deficit spending, uh, the government spending goes up for, by a dollar, but, but total private spending declines by more than a dollar. And that there was nothing to be gained from it other than this transitory uh, boost that occurs for a very limited period of time. And by the way, the, the boost from the deficit financed activity, the, the uh, transitory boost is getting shorter and shorter. And the multiplier keeps getting more and more negative. The second proposition that uh, I had believed in when I left Temple University, and this served me in great stead in the 1970s, was that the velocity of money was stable. Uh, so in the 1970s, uh, money supply growth was 10 and nominal GDP was 10 because that, that was the time period in which Friedman was operating. And, it, and the empirical evidence that was available to Friedman said the velocity of money was stable. However, in the early 1980s, it broke out of that stable range. And um, we were able to pick that up. And we have felt that uh, in highly indebted economies, the velocity of money declines. And I will tell you that um, if you read uh, Fisher's great article in 1934, his mea culpa, the article that he wrote to explain why he missed the Great Depression so egregiously. One of the things that he said is that he had assumed that the velocity of money was stable, but in highly over-indebted economies, the velocity of money falls. And um, uh, so what happens when you become extremely over-indebted, uh, monetary policy's capabilities become asymmetric. Um, if the Fed wishes to tighten conditions, the monetary policy still works. But, but in this uh, circumstance such as we have today, where the economy is extremely over-indebted, the debt is highly unproductive, and we can uh, have objective verification of that, the velocity of money falls. And so since 1997, velocity peaked at $2.20, and today it's around one one thirty in a fraction. Hadn't declined every quarter, certainly, and hadn't declined every year, but it's been in a major secular downturn. And one of the things that we were quick to pick up on is that um, the other economies of the world, major economies, Japan, uh, Europe, China, uh, are more over-indebted than we are. The productivity of their debt is weaker. And the velocity of money is not only declining there, but is even below what it is in the United States. For example, money in Europe is not even turning over uh, one time a year. It's down to 0.9 times. And the velocity of money in Japan and, and China are both around a half a time per year. And, and so um, uh, we, we've operated on those two propositions. 
And, and so we actually put forth a theorem uh, that received quite a bit of um, recognition in which we said, we, the theorem was this, that government debt accelerations uh, ultimately lead to lower, not higher interest rate. We've, we've shown people that the empirical evidence, not only for the United States, but for the other major economies of the world. And all you have to do is chart it. Chart government debt to GDP uh, on, on the right axis or the left axis, and then put the government bond yield on the other, and you'll see that it's an inverse correlation. And we have a lot of evidence, serious evidence, that um, when, when, when government debt to GDP gets to about 50% of GDP, there is a deleterious impact on economic activity. And that when uh, the government debt ratio rises above 65%, it becomes very serious and increasingly so. Now, what I've just described to you is a nonlinear relationship. And that's important. Economics is not accounting. Let me make that clear. And more need not be more. And, and so what we were able to figure out uh, using the production function, uh, the production function says that, that real GDP, economic output, is determined by technology inter interacting with the factors of production, land, labor, and capital. If you overuse one of those factors of production, let us say debt capital, initially the GDP will rise. But if you continue to, do, to overuse that factor of production, real GDP flattens out and then it turns down. It's called diminishing returns. It's nonlinear. Now, the accounting mind will say if you, if you borrow and spend $2 trillion and that doesn't work, then try $4 trillion. If $4 trillion doesn't work, then try $8 trillion. But, but they do not understand that the relationship is nonlinear. And by the way, we all have production functions, including the Chinese. The fact that they're a command and control economy, that doesn't matter. You overuse the factor of production, you're, you're going to get weaker economic growth. And so what is happening, the economic growth rate is coming down very substantially. From taking the United States, from, from the founding of the Republic in 1790 to the period at which we, we reached these high over-indebtedness levels in the late 1990s, the, the real per capita GDP growth was 2% per annum. And in the, since then, we're only growing 1% per annum. And um, so as investors see that happening, the growth rates coming down, they're willing to accept a lower real rate. That's part of the Fisher equation, the real rate plus inflationary expectations. So the real rate's coming down, and there's evidence that investors are now even willing to accept an even lower real rate because the economic, the economic uh, potentiality is deteriorating, not just in the United States, but everywhere you look. The real, rate, the real rate of growth is deteriorating. In addition, the inflation rate is coming down. So the, this is a very powerful influence once you understand that in a general equilibrium model, the Fisher equation prevails. It's one of the pillars of macroeconomics. Yeah, you know, Lacey, it's, it, it's, it's interesting that you've, I mean, you, you've, you've boiled down um, an incredibly uh, long and successful uh, career to to something very simple to understand and, and obviously there's a there's a temptation these days to overcomplicate things with the sheer amount of data that 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 we can keep that we can dig out or we are presented with 
you when when you when you pin your uh, your flag to that master the fisher equation and simplify things and kind of take away all the clutter does that make it easier for you because you you have this phenomenal knowledge of history and so i wonder whether that knowledge of history does that help or hinder in terms of trying to understand what's going on now and, and how the previous parallels uh, might come into play when you're trying to boil it down to something as simple as let's build this around the Fisher equation? The, the economic history is essential. Yeah. Now, I was trained in econometric model building. And I did, I first of all built reduced form models and uh, they were published by in peer reviewed journals, the Journal of Finance, the Financial Analyst Journal. And then, then I built the first large-scale econometric model of the financial market for Chase Econometrics. That was my first book, Dynamics of Financial of Forecasting Financial Cycles. Um, and um, one of the one of the biggest mistakes that I made in the earlier models was that I estimated the parameters over too short of a time period. In fact, all of my early work, all of the early work of Friedman, most of the other economists. Of, of my generation and the generation before me were basically estimating parameters from uh, early 1950s forward. So by the 1970s, you had 20 years of data. And then by the end of the 80s, you had 80 years. And um, where those models went wrong is that that data sample was too limited. And so it became apparent that we needed to look at all of the data. And so, um, in part thanks to Friedman, part thanks to funded research at the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, we have the monetary data and the uh, outline of the national income and product accounts from the 18th century. So, so one of the things which uh, we did was to test our hypothesis from 100 from 1870 forward, and the view was my view was that uh, if a proposition is valid, then it should hold up regardless of whether you have an income tax or you don't, whether you have a central bank or whether you don't, whether you're on the gold standard or whether you're not on the gold standard, or whether you're on a fixed exchange rate standard or a floating rate standard. In other words, that none of these initial conditions should matter uh, in, a, in a model that is truly uh, accepting by the data. And so it was important to, to make sure that our propositions held over the entire sample period. And so I would, I would say it became very important. And so one of the things that, that we did uh, with the help of David Hoisington, who's worked very closely with me, uh, we engaged in a lot of archival research and, and, and we pieced together the historical record. And, and I think that, um, I, I, I'm just really not interested in, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time spans. And people that draw propositions from them, um, they may be lucky, but, but they will not be consistently right. You've got you, you, economic propositions have to stand the entire sample period. And so I would say that, that one of the things that I benefited from very significantly being trained when I was trained is that um, – I, I was taught the econometrics, but I, I was able to study under some professors that still taught economic history and the history of economic theory. And, and, and so we looked at European and U.S. economic history. I, that was not my major. I'm, my fields are 
macroeconomics, international economics and finance and econometrics. But, but I took those courses and, and I had the benefit of, of that qualitative analysis and because it's, it's very important to understand, in my view. E- economics is tough. And, and reading, and reading uh, press releases from governmental agencies or hearing the interpretations in the financial press, uh, people may think that makes you an economist, not in my view. It's a very serious business. And, and um, one of the things that my prof- a couple of my professors told me when I left Temple University with my new doctorate, is they said that they had done the best for uh, for me that they could do, but they reminded to me that economics is a science, and that hypothesis testing and technological advance will occur, and if you you have to stay abreast of it, I'll just give you one little example. Um, when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, it was a tremendous book. He made one major flaw, and that flaw was that price was determined by labor content. Adam Smith's labor theory of value. Karl Marx's whole system is based on labor theory of value. Well, we we know that's wrong. Uh, It was not until 1870, Smith writes in 1776, it's almost 100 years later before William Stanley Jevons conceptualizes the demand curve. And then it takes another 20 years after that for Alfred Marshall to say price is determined by the intersection of demand and supply. And so economics is, is we, we, we become smarter. Um, the tools available to us, uh, the availability of data, people have recreated historical data in a more uh, complete framework. And so our, our understanding is not standing still. And to assume uh, one of the things that I, I get really leery of was when someone starts lecturing me on what they learned in econ 45 years ago. <laughs> because because there are certain things, particularly in microeconomics at hold, but, but macroeconomics, a lot of the propositions there uh, um, that are taught in the schools are simply not valid and haven't been valid for a long time. So, Lacey, there's plenty of people who um, spend a lot of time trying to figure out analogs going back in, in history to, to, to where we are now, to try and f- understand what's happening and how it might play out. And obviously the most commonly cited one um, for where we are right now is, is the Great Depression. That's the one that people seem to continually go back to, whether it's the Roaring Twenties and then the bust, or whether it's you know, the pandemic damaged the economy. Whatever it is, there seems to be something in that period of time which gives people something to hang their hats on. Is is that the most sensible period to look at, or or if not, which periods uh, are you guys looking at as a potential clue to to, to what may happen from here? Well, um, uh, I think in the United States, this is the this year we're going to hit a new peak in total public and private debt to GDP, which will eclipse the peak that we reached in 08 and 09. Um, the peak in 08 and 09 was the third secular peak since 1870. One occurred in the early 1870s, then 1929, 1930, then 2008, 2009, and now 09. In each of those cases, we were all extremely over-indebted. Um, the surge in the debt-to-GDP ratio reflected both the numerator and the denominator of the equation. 
the debt went up, and the GDP went down. In each of the three earlier cases, the result was disinflation. The inflation rate came down unequivocally. In some of the instances, the, the fall in inflation was enough to cross the zero bound. In other, words, in other words, we not only got a fall in the inflation rate, but it took us into negative territory. There are no exceptions. Extreme over-indebtedness leads to a weak economic activity. Now, thanks to Fisher's great article in 1934, um, uh, uh, Fisher had not only discussed what happened in the 1930s, but the 1870s, and then an earlier case in 1838. Now, the one in 1838, we, we don't have really have hard data, but it was very, very similar. Um, there had been massive overspeculation in the building of the canals. We started with the Erie Canal, but then we built more than 100 other canals. And then we built the early steamship lines. We financed it all with debt. There was overliving, there was high uh, overconsumption. Um, the panic hit in 1838. Van Buren is president. He has no idea what hit him. In the 1860s, after the Civil War, we started building the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, this was done on debt. Then we built the feeder lines. We, we first of all built the central route, uh, Transcontinental Railroad. Then we built the northern, the southern routes, feeder routes, the industries that fed the railroads. Uh, there was overconsumption, overinvestment. Grant is president. He is no better equipped to deal with what happens to him in 1873 than Van Buren was, was equipped to deal with in 1838. And then we have 1929. The economy was even more indebted than in those two previous cases. Uh, and But the consequences were the same. We had disinflation. And in some cases, the disinflation was severe enough to lead to deflation. Now, after 2008, 2009, Contrary to the 1870s and, and, and the 20s and 30s, we, we were not able to deleverage the debt and get it back to normal. We, we managed to bring it down somewhat. And here the pandemic is hit, and we have now established within 12 years a new peak going all the way back to 1870. And, and that's not a good sign. It's a very bad sign, in my opinion. Lacey, I have a friend of mine who runs a bond fund, and he's a big fan of yours and your letters, and he has a, a, exactly the similar viewpoint that you do, except he has now um, potentially concerned about his thesis, which is very similar to yours, although probably not backed up by as much data as you have, that the introduction of government guaranteed loans to the banks like the PPP here and the, the one in England and Germany and also in Spain might be something to kick the M's into gear. And that concerns him, but he weighs that against what the, you know, the unproductive nature of these debts. Can you comment on those two kinds of uh, opposing forces, please? Okay. Okay. So we had a situation, um, back in March and April, in which um, the private credit markets sort of panicked, right? And the Federal Reserve came in, and they did things that are really not directly authorized by the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, they justify it uh, by the exigent circumstances rule. Um, uh, 
personally, I, I'm not comfortable with what they did in terms of the law, but no one else seems to object, so we'll let that pass. But but when, when the Federal Reserve comes in and engages in all of this lending, um, they're able to stabilize the markets. And they, they thus, therefore, firms that could, would not have been able to have stayed in business are able to stay in business. And so people hail that as an accomplishment. Um, but we've seen maybe two dozen of these instances in Japan. And we've probably seen close to a dozen instances in Europe where firms really were not worthy of credit, but through heroic efforts, it's a term that Charles Kendallberger used, a uh, great MIT economist of an earlier generation, uh, the Fed comes in and stabilizes the markets. And that does work over the short run. However, it blunts two of the most important relationships of the free market economy. And one of them is it blunts Schumpeter's creative destruction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, for economies to grow and to thrive, there has to be failure. Resources have to be allocated to the up and coming ones that are going to, that have the new ideas, the new concepts, and have the ability to grow rapidly. It also blunts moral hazard. And um, uh, so, I mean, I mean, the Japanese uh, have now not only extended the operations to credit, but the, to the stock market. And they, they per, but, but, but really the stock market in Japan hasn't done well. And, the, and, may, and, and more importantly, the economy has not done better. So the Fed comes in with all of these powerful lending tools and it stabilizes the markets and everyone says hooray. But the job of the economist is to understand the initial effects and the ultimate, the seen and the unseen. And a lot of people don't want to be concerned with the unintended consequence. But, but, but we know from the Japanese, the European, and the Chinese experience that when you undertake these actions, you thwart creative destruction and moral hazard. And so you're basically, you're basically removing two of the most important mechanisms that allow the free market system to outperform the rest. Now, uh, initially, of course, uh, there is going to be an increase in the money supply. And the money supply year over year is shot up to 25%. And that, that is fastest money supply growth probably in history. Certainly the highest since the late four, uh, the World War II. However, the equation of exchange doesn't say GDP equals money. It says GDP equals money times velocity. Now, money is a very complex variable. And, and one has to take into account all of the factors that influence money. But velocity is also a very complex factor. And, and there, there are a lot of things going on here. Now, when the Federal Reserve comes in to the system and um, they lend, uh, when they buy government securities, the net result is, generally speaking, is that the average maturity of the federal debt goes down and the banks are forced to take overnight deposits to the Fed. All it does is change the maturity of the consolidated debt of the Fed and the Treasury. And this short-term stabilizing effect is very pronounced. There's a first-round increase in the money supply. The banks have tons of reserves. And many people assume that because they have tons of reserves, they will lend it out. But that's not what determines bank lending. The bank lending process is very complex. The, the banks, to be able to put reserves to work, 
they have to have the capital base to take the risk that the loans will will be not be repaid. Also, the banks have to price the loans to make a profit, and that includes not only their interest costs and their various overhead costs, but it includes the risk premium. And moreover, the borrower has to be able to pay all those costs plus the risk premium. And, and so when we had quantitative one, two, and three, the Fed expanded the balance sheet, money supply went up, people said the Fed was printing money, and there was certainly a large first round increase in money, not as large as today, and, and, and folks went out and assumed that that would lead to hyperinflation, the dollar would decline, commodities would rise. But what happened? The velocity of money fell. There was a transitory boost in economic equity, but it didn't last that long. Well, in my view, this is really no different. The sum, the first round increase in money supply is greater, but I think it will be more than compensated for by a decline in the velocity of money. There is one caveat. Um, we've just seen where the Fed has done things that were not authorized under the Federal Reserve Act. Now, it says in there explicitly, the Fed cannot buy government buy corporate and agency securities or lend them or lend to those entities, but they did it, okay? They do have the exigent circumstances rule, but, but exigent circumstances to me doesn't imply that you can buy whatever assets you want. And uh, now, um, the, 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 there is a growing risk that the whole nature of the Federal Reserve Act will be changed and that it will not be the same act that we have operated. Uh, when when the, the Federal Reserve Act had to be rewritten after we left the gold standard in, in 1934, and that job mainly fell to Senator Carter Glass of Virginia. Uh, who was a pretty smart fellow. Mm -hmm. And he went to the two leading monetary economists of the time, Irving Fisher uh, at Yale University and Charles Whittlesey at the University of Pennsylvania. By the way, uh, Whittlesey gave me my uh, macroeconomic oral. I was getting my MBA at Penn. <laughs> and um, what, what, uh, Glass told them is that we want to give the Fed great lending power, but we do not want them to be able to use their liabilities for spending. In other words, the central bank's liabilities are not legal tender. Right. Now, um, to be money, you have to meet three criteria. It has to be a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. When, when the Fed buys government securities, once it clears, the electronic deposit stays on the books of the Fed. The banks are holding an overnight liability. Those do not circulate. They can lead to a first round increase in the money supply. And as we've seen currently, it's a substantial increase in the money supply. However, it is not legal tender. But there are folks who would like to make the Fed's liabilities legal tender. In other words, have the Fed directly pay the bills, make them a medium of exchange. I don't know what will happen there, but there is, there is that risk. And if, if that happens, either by rewriting the Federal Reserve Act or by saying they need to do it for exigent circumstances, then the whole picture would change. Yeah. And in very short order, you would again get very rapid inflation. 
Gresham's law would take effect. Bad money would chase out the good. Money, for money to have value, money must have value. If it does not have value, then you then you get very rapid inflation, and and we've we've seen this happen uh, in Shanghai Shek's China in the 1930s. We saw it in in um, in Germany after World War One. We've seen uh, two great documented cases: one in Hungary, another in in Yugoslavia at the end of World War Two. Numerous cases um, uh, in before we had banking systems. Uh, we had three great empires that became extremely over-indebted, Mesopotamian, Roman, and Bourbon. And they basically could not obtain additional loans from moneylenders or the, what rudimentary banking did exist. And so what did they do? They issued a worthless metallic coin. Having the Fed's liabilities legal tender would be the same equivalent. Yeah, that's, that that's, would change that's the whole system. It. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. And, yeah, yeah. And, and we have seen that outcome... We have seen that outcome. Now, um, if we stay under the current system of monetary rules of the Federal Reserve Act, then we have a standard to go by from a very outstanding research project that was done by McKinsey Global Institute in, in 2010. And you can go on the McKinsey website and you can read it. And they looked at 24 advanced economies for the time from 1900 through 2008, that became extremely over-indebted. They followed the buildup in debt and the solution. And what they found was in all 24 cases, the over-indebtedness had to be solved by what they called austerity. That's their term, McKinsey's term, not mine. Mm -hmm. And they defined austerity as a a multiple year significant rise in the saving rate. In other words, if you think of indebtedness as living beyond one's means, then you have to live inside your means. Yeah. And, and what we have today is an unwilling, there's no political will to go to austerity. Mm-hmm. And, and so currently we're trying to, to basically take on more debt to solve an indebtedness problem. There's an inherent fallacy in that concept. It's not working in China. It's not working in Japan. It's not working, it's not working anywhere, nor has it ever worked. So ultimately there is some risk at some point in time that you, so what I like to call, say, cross the Rubicon. And instead of confining the central bank to lending operations, you, you allow them to begin spending or they either usurp the power. Lacey, let me ask you, because this, this brings up something that, um, that came up in our, uh, in our previous conversation with Russell Napier. And we got to talking about inflation. And, and Russell's point um, was that the the change in the mechanism here by which the, the government is now essentially going to the commercial banks, getting them to lend and guaranteeing them loans, um, and, and thereby making those loans contingent liabilities on, on the government balance sheet, um, that it, it changes the, the dynamic here, that a lot of those loans are expected to go bad. Many of them won't be paid off. So you've had this huge credit pulse go into the market um, that's going to sit there and Russell thinks that that could be the final moment. And Russell, like you, has been uh, on the disinflationary slash deflation train for over a decade now. But he's seen something that that has made him change his mind and start to think that, that this particular action, taking power away from the central banks and putting it in the hands of the government, may actually be 
the straw that breaks the camel's back. Do, do you do you think there's credibility to that, or what would it take for you perhaps to start thinking? Okay, maybe um, we are going to see the end of this deflationary uh, trend, and, and we are going to move towards a more inflationary impulse. I, I consider the steps taken so far to be a relatively small value, a small amount relative to the economy, and not a a continuing framework. But if you if you move to the point where you use the the Federal Reserve's liabilities for spending either to absorb losses for others or to purchase goods or services, the ultimate outcome would be inflation. I don't think we're on that path yet, but we might be. I, I don't I think that the current steps are 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 relatively unimportant, but they could lay the foundation ultimately, but not immediately, no. Uh, Lacey, I was, I'm curious, um, go, I want to go back to Japan for a second, if I might. Um, obviously, they started their monetization scheme over there when, they were, when, they were, when their debt to GDP was probably the highest of the G7 countries. And now they've managed to absorb half of the, I'm not telling anything you don't know, half the JGBs and a bunch of the ETFs. What would you? What what's going to be the end game in Japan? Are the, I mean, I assume that the BOJ is never ever going to reduce its balance sheet. Um, what, what's the end game once you go down that process? Do you have a, a thought about that? I have, and some pretty smart people have thought about it as well. Um, uh, I think one of the greatest minds of mankind was David Hume. David Hume was mentor to Adam Smith. Um, Smith knew all the figures of the Enlightenment. He knew Ben Franklin, who was a genius, as we all know. And he knew Voltaire, and he knew Watt. He knew them all. And he said that Hume had the greatest intellect. Um, by the way, um, uh, Hume read Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations uh, shortly before he died, he was in poor health and he sent Smith a short letter and he spotted Smith's flaw of the labor theory of value. And he congratulated, it's a short letter. We don't know whether he ever met with Smith, uh, after the letter was written, um, because of his death. And he said, he congratulated him because London was in a very celebratory mood I mean, because Smith is saying, you know, the visible hand is going to make everybody better off. You know, free enterprise works. London was the center of free enterprise. So London was celebrating it. Uh, but he said, but if you were at my fireside, I would say to you, with regard to your labor theory of value, what about the demand for our utility of a good? And tons of people read this letter. And, so, so, but yet we don't have the demand curve until 1870. Um, another thing Hume's, Hume discussed time and space, and it was that discussion that, according to Albert Einstein, said led to the theory of relativity. My professor said that the Enlightenment could not have occurred without David Hume. Anyway, Hume wrote this tremendous piece on public uh, credit in 1772. And he said in there, if you do not control public credit, it will control you. And and, and his final conclusion is that when a, when a state has mortgaged all of its future revenues, the state lapses into tranquility, languor, and empathy. And now we have a lot of examples. And so you become weaker and weaker and weaker. And whether you 
managed to hold it together with high levels of indebtedness or whether you uh, try to use some sort of worthless instrument to pay the debt off, uh, the system really doesn't work well under it. And, and what, what we have here, and really the thrust of, of where the modern monetary theory is going, what the, uh, people are talking about the technicals of MMT, the, the real flaw is that what creates economic prosperity, well-being, advancement, is hard work, ingenuity, saving, reinvesting. The solution's not with the government. But you see, what we're looking for is some sort of easy governmental solution, which is not the, not the way we achieved our prosperity. That's the fundamental flaw in, in MMT. And so we're, we, government policy has failed, and so we're, we're, we're going back to the government asking for more of the same types of policy. But we're getting off into areas where the results could be even more catastrophic. In disinflation or even low inflation, it's it's not a good system. But it, it's if we go, if if we start making the Fed's liabilities legal tender, everyone's going to be totally miserable in very short order. People will not want to hold financial assets, and then you will have to. They'll only want to hold commodities that they can consume or trade for consumable commodities. You you require double coincidental wants. Productivity collapses. The whole system begins to malfunction. And, and there are people that are willing to take that risk in order to, to get beyond the debt problem. And uh, so um, we, we are moving into a time where the, um, the situation be could become more, more volatile. But, but that is not today. We're not there now. We may be on the path, but we're not there. Um if I, if I could ask a, a sort of a black and white question uh, back to Japan for a second, I understand what you just said, but let's, let's suppose for a moment that the BOJ goes to the Ministry of Finance and says, look, we're just going to exchange these bonds for a 200-year perp or some you know, worthless asset, but it's an asset. But now they've basically expunged the debt in, in for all intents and purposes. The, the next day after they did that, how would JGB's trade? Do you have an opinion? I mean, what, what, no, what would I be don't. the impact on? Okay, the, the 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 only way that it would really matter is if they were to default on the debt, and they can't default because even though they are the main owner, uh, the banking system and the corporate sector and individuals hold a lot of JGBs. So you could you could eliminate the um, you could eliminate the debt held by the BOJ since the BOJ is a subsidiary of the government, but you cannot eliminate the debt in the hands of the uh, private sector. You would bankrupt. And the fact of the matter is the, the debt is still effectively there, which means that you cannot bypass the law of diminishing returns. Because what you're thinking is that we, we somehow put it aside and then we go about borrowing more money to facilitate economic... Well, if you overuse a factor of production... The, the growth rate will just get weaker and weaker. It, there, there's no financial solution. Everybody's looking for a cutesy tootsie fix, <laughs> right. and it's not there. So this debt jubilee idea is... Uh, by the way, I've heard people say to me, I, I've been told that you're a bright fellow. 
well, if you're so bright, why can't you tell me what the fix is? <laughs> <laughs> there is no fix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. They say, well, if you're in charge of the Federal Reserve now, how would you solve things? I said, you mean painlessly, because that's what you really want to know. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't get into these policy disputes. I'm in the investment management business, right. and so I don't make policy recommendations. But, but Lacey, so, so it, 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 is there anything that, that would make you change your mind? Because, I, I mean, maybe it's if we start to see the U.S. Treasury curve turn negative, how, how would that change your approach to this? Well, here, okay, this is, okay, so let's go back to the Fisher equation. Fisher equation says the long Treasury equals the real rate plus executive function. So let's say we stay on this path under the current system. The growth rate's going to grind down. And by the way, if you, if you look at the, the inflation-adjusted securities, they're negative. The real, real yields are negative, which is basically a way of investors saying that they're expecting the growth rate to deteriorate and maybe even be negative for a prolonged period of time. Uh, so the real rate's going to come down. The inflation rate's going to fall. So the, the Fisher equation uh, does not have a zero bound. So the thrust of the Fisher equation is going is, is, is going to want to try to push the Treasury rates through zero. Now, the Federal Reserve has said they do not want negative rates, which to me is the same thing as saying is that we are hoping and praying we don't go into deflation. Now, if the Fed holds the overnight rate and the inflation rate goes negative, at that point in time, the real treasury rates will start rising. You see, because we'll be stuck there. We'll be, we'll be hunkered down close yeah. to. So yeah. if we still go yeah. to 2% negative, or, uh, the, the real treasury rate will start rising. Now, remember that the Fisher equation has, has a counterpart for the corporate yields and the private yields. And that is the, the private yields are equal to the real yield plus inflationary expectation plus the risk premium. All right, if we go into deflation, the risk premium is going up. That's what's happened in Japan. That's what happened during the Great Depression. So at the point in time you go into negative inflation rate, the real treasury rates rise and the private borrowing rates will rise even more because in a deflationary environment, uh, pricing power will evaporate and the risk premium will rise. Well, if, if you're working with a general equilibrium model, you're not going to achieve your equilibrium you'll remain in a pe perpetual downward spiral. So they, so ultimately, um, they, they may need to allow the zero bound to be cracked. So, you know, it, if, if that happens, and obviously we, we can talk for all, all we want about what they may or may not allow, but what we've seen in um, other sovereigns, uh, I'm thinking particularly places like Germany, is... Uh, a rush for safe assets um, take yields negative nominally uh, at, at the market side of things. Does that present a potential problem for the Federal Reserve that the market may take? Um, you know, and we're very close. If you look at where yields are now, we're very close to that to that paradigm being crossed. If that decision to go negative is taken out of their hands, how does that affect things? Well, the to my way of thinking. The, the interest rate differentials are not um, the most important factor with regard to the dollar, but they are a factor. 
Mm-hmm. So the rest of the world is taking their rates negative, and they're they're going even more negative this year, on average from where we started, which means that as time goes by, the interest rate differential will work against the U.S., which means that the dollar will be incrementally stronger. Now, I know a lot of people are, are worried because the dollar has been weak over the last, you know, six or seven weeks. Um, that is, and, and there are people predicting dollar Armageddon, but um, I don't buy those views. First of all, the rest of the world is more over indebted than we are, and they are doing worse economically than we're doing. I mean, we, uh, look at look at the GDP numbers for Europe versus yeah. the United States. I mean, we uh, we we had a thirty-two uh, percent decline. Europe was down forty-eight percent yeah. annualized. Yeah. I mean, Europe weathered this much much worse than we did, and they're far more indebted. And their indebtedness numbers are going to look terrible because they they have borrowed a great deal, and their GDP uh, has dropped even faster than we did. And their demographics are worse. So the, 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 fundal, uh, the economic fundamentals in the United States, looking at the production function, the marginal revenue product of the debt and the productivity, the United States has the capability of, of growing at a, at a slightly better rate than Europe and Japan, which means that the dollar will hold value. And, it, and if they go negative in their short rates, then this will reinforce the uh, strength of the dollar, which will tend to shift economic output away from the United States. I, I think the, the, the discussion in here is misplaced right now. The dollar is not doing that badly. And if you look at the Fed's trade-weighted measure, in spite of all of this uh, talk about the dollar collapsing, it's, we're still up on the year. We're higher now than we were at the, at the start of the year. And we're outperforming. In other words, this is a... Uh, um, a psychological episode, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's not it's supported f- by the fundamentals. I think it's also a function of positioning. I think a lot of people got themselves hyped up on a dollar shortage thesis because of debt in the world, and uh, got long it, and that hasn't quite played out, and it's just created some noise. And now everyone's taken a modest drop in the dollar as the end of the world. It seems to me. We've had several of these episodes. If you, if you, you're exactly right. I couldn't agree more. And for example, when the Fed started on QE1, and um, Bernanke said the Fed was effectively printing money, there was a there was a huge a surge in the foreign currencies, huge surge in the commodities. Uh, economic activity got a little lift, but the 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 reserves, the banks were not utilized. The velocity of money fell. The economy's growth rate fell back. And so those projections uh, at the time of QE1, QE2, and QE3 about an inflationary outcome with a weak dollar, well, where are those brave folks? A lot of them have returned to the same forecast. And, and as, as, um, as, I, as I said earlier, we're still operating under the same system. Maybe the system is going to change, but... We still have the same fundamental relationships as we previously had. I I don't I don't know why everybody wants to get on the have hyperinflation because we're going to make <laughs> our people miserable. Yep, we're going to make them totally miserable. And hyperinflations are socially disruptive. They're they are not helpful. 
No, I think uh, I think I think a, a nice modest three four percent would would do most people just fine at this at this point. Um, Lacey, so look, in, in, you you make the Fed's liabilities legal tender. We won't. We'll yeah. go through. Yeah, we'll go three or four or five or ten quickly. Yeah. Well, look. So just just in in, in wrapping up, just um, is there anything as you look out at, at this landscape, say from the from the perspective of someone that has had this trade on for such a long time and has had it tested at multiple junctures during that 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 you know couple of decades um is there anything you see looking out ahead that that has you if not concerned that this may be coming to an end but certainly something that you think you know i need to keep an eye on that because if a change is going to come a secular change in the in the inflationary environment here's a place where i think it might it might start well my focus is the production function and so the production function is technology interacting with land, labor, and capital. Uh, we know that they're overusing debt capital. So that's a major negative uh, via the law of diminishing returns. It's going to undermine economic um, And moreover, it's coming at a time when our demographics are deteriorating. Now, uh, last year, um, our population growth was about 0.4% per annum. It was only half that in Europe, 0.2% per annum. It was unchanged in China and negative 0.2 in Japan. There's a Brookings study that indicates that, the, that, that we will have roughly 300 to 500,000 fewer births next year, the United States, as a result of the pandemic and its economic consequences. But it's likely that, that, that that's going to be a worldwide phenomenon. We don't have a study on the rest of the world. So the, the demographic element was very poor. U.S. population growth last year was the slowest since 1918, which is rather ironic because yeah. that was the Spanish flu. Yeah. And world population last year was the slowest since 1952. And, in, and the advanced economies outside the United States uh, were at multi-year, multi-decade lows. So... We're, we're going to get a drag from both the overuse of debt capital and the deteriorating demographic. What could change the pattern? Well, uh, we could presumably have a windfall of new natural resource discoveries. Um, I don't know what that would be, um, but, but uh, the natural resource base really hasn't changed significantly in quite some time. So. Uh, it probably will not be a factor unless we start uh, harvesting minerals from outer space or something. And I wouldn't discount that in due course, but I don't think that's an immediate. Now, so that that leaves the one element of technology. Um, Bill Gates believes that technology will save us. And Bill Gates is a smart fellow. And we have to recognize that he holds that view and others hold that uh, and I would not eliminate technology as a factor because I, I'm, I, I myself have, have taken advantage of technological change with regard to staying abreast of uh, economic theory. But I, I think the, the basic pattern here that we're following in technology was well laid out by Robert A. Gordon in his outstanding book, The Rise and Fall of American Economic Growth. It's just a tremendous book. It's on the, it's on the American production function. And Gordon's point is that during our heyday of growth from 1870 to 1970, what we had 
were revolutionary inventions that enhanced the demand for natural resources and labor. Combustion engine. Think of what the combustion engine requires. Mm -hmm. Assembly lines, complex supply systems. Then it requires enhancing the road infrastructure and bridges. So the combustion engine meant that we enhance the demand for other elements in the production function. Think of uh, transmission of electricity, another one of the, the critical five. Building the electric grid and what that took. I mean, we, we knew about electricity since Franklin, but Edison told us how we could transmit it. But we didn't complete building the electric grid until World War II. That, that required a lot of things. And so did modern sanitation and, and uh, communication. And, and pharmaceuticals and chemicals. So technology, I think, could bail us out, but it's gonna to have to be of a revolutionary nature, not of an evolutionary nature. Uh, what we're seeing today is, is changing lives in many, many ways, but it's not enhancing the demand for natural resources and labor. But, but that's, that's what we have to be abreast of. And I'll, I'll personally tell you that that's something that most economists are not that well equipped to deal with. <laughs> so, I, so I'm, I'm guessing by that that you don't uh, you don't see uh, TikTok or uh, or Twitter as uh, revolutionary developments. <laughs> I think that I think I'm I'm alert to a technology, but I don't I don't see the revolutionary type of technology that lifts the whole production function upward. All right, fantastic, L- Lacey. It's been uh, it's been an incredibly dense hour, as it always is whenever I get the chance to speak to you, and and I I thank you for that. It's it's um. Yeah, the beauty of these podcasts that Bill and I have been doing is that the people listening to them are listening to them three or four times because they've all been extraordinarily complex um, with an awful lot of information and some some really interesting and 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 provocative viewpoints that the people hadn't considered before them. And and although your work is uh, is well regarded and well established and and well read by many people, I think um, there aren't enough opportunities to hear you talk about this stuff. So my, well, my I appreciate you. For, you uh... Uh, allowing me to have a window on the world. No, look, it's 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 always a great pleasure, and and sincerely thank thank you so much for taking this time to to share those thoughts with us. Bill, nice to uh, thank you both for your great questions. Well, uh, thank you. More importantly, thank you for your great and in depth <laughs> answers. I, I I can listen to the replay of this, and I probably took four pages of notes while you were talking. So, <laughs> so oh, thank thanks. you. Okay, Lacey, thanks so much. I hope I hope we see each other in person again soon. All right, it won't be a, it won't be this year. No, it looks like it looks that way. Take do, care. Do you know anybody that has any trips scheduled this year or next year? Uh, I, you know, I don't. I really don't. I know every. I ask everybody I talk to. Yeah. No one no. does. So. No. No, I don't either. I know someone that had someone in December, but they they put a line through it this week. So. <laughs> <laughs> All the best to both of you. All right, take care, Lizzie. Thank Thanks you. So much. Fun. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. And that we thought was that. The interview ended, we finished the recording, uh, and then within a couple of hours, I guess, an article dropped on Bloomberg, which essentially uh, pointed to the exact solution that Lacey said would give him cause of concern. So I went back to Lacey and asked him for some thoughts on this uh, uh, this article, which was basically a proposal for the Fed uh, sending money directly to households. And I'm going to read his reply because I want to make sure that you get it in his words, and then Bill and I are going to talk about it for a second because I think it's important. Here's what Lacey wrote. This proposal is not going to pass this year. 
No, I can't do the southern drawl, just in case you're expecting me to. I saw, I, wait, wait, no, that's not fair. I want the, I want the. This proposal is not going to pass <laughs> this year. There you go. I, I can't do it unless right. he does. Um, nor would the recommendation pass quickly in 2021. To move the proposal along, Powell and the Fed establishment would need to endorse the proposal. This is not a Fed proposal. I don't think that Powell would do this, but the new president gets to appoint his own chair in February 2022. Hearings have not even been held. So hearings would have to occur first, but that will only happen if the Fed is willing to lead the process. All of the various other Fed proposals, some equally extreme, would get thrown into the hopper. This will slow the process down. Then the arguing would have to go on. Then the bill would need to be drafted. It would probably go through revisions, and then it would need to pass both House and Senate, and the President would have to sign it. I doubt this legislation could only pass before the end of next year at the earliest if Powell and the Fed are on board. If Powell is unwilling to lead such a legal revision, then the process of changing the law could not change until after the new Fed chair has settled into the job. Notice that this proposal would likely end currency and force a digital currency. The government would be able to track everyone's financial record. It would be a great intrusion on private freedom. At the end of the day, this proposal would put the Fed in the money printing business. It would constitute a major break within our system. Money would have no value as soon as the money illusion passed and Gresham's law would prevail. It's part of the view that financial transactions create income and wealth, not hard work, creativity, and saving out of income. In other words, it would be the triumph of the free lunch school of economics. The US will at that point have achieved banana republic status. To go along this path would lead to hyperinflation and a widespread miserable condition of the American household. Lacey. So, you know, it, it's funny. It was the last thing we talked about on the podcast, pretty much. Um, and it happened so quickly. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that, Bill? Well, when I, I saw that the, the, the morning after we'd finished recording yeah. the interview and I, and I was stunned because that was the very thing that he said was, you can tell was his number one concern. <clears throat> I think that he makes uh, an excellent point on how long it might take to actually implement that. Yeah. Thus, perhaps it's not something we should necessarily worry about. But um, I, the only caveat I would make, because his his reply was so well thought out, the only caveat I would have is that um, if we get some economic data or financial market problems that start to snowball, we all know that they can they will change course quickly. So it may not take quite as long as his logic. Uh, would suggest, though I'm not really prepared to argue with him, I just know that these things can happen fast in a sloppy fashion. I think the more the more important point is how serious he takes that possibility and how bad it would be for all of us. Um, so it's not something any of us would like to see, but it, it would certainly be a continuation of a lot of the wrong-headed policies we've seen for a long time, and it would finally be the end game. Period. That's that's it. It's game over for bonds, stocks. I mean, currency, our currency. I mean, not over, but real destruction for sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's fine. I, I, I looked at the at the timeline too, um, which again, Lacey laid out in in beautifully detailed uh, paragraph. And thought the same thing. It, that's a long way to get through, but unusual and exigent circumstances. We saw how quickly they got the tarp through when they needed it through, and we saw how quickly the Fed got into the direct lending business and how quickly they circumvented the junk bond rules. And, you know, these things tend not to take long. I mean, I, I, I understand that this 
this is uh, it comes down to the Federal Reserve Act, I presume, is what is what they would need the bill they would need to get through. But um, uh, one would imagine at that point that the it would be very difficult for any politician to hold this thing up. That's that's what worries me, particularly when the Fed put the frightness on us. We know they'll do. They'll talk about the collapse of the system and the end of America as we know it. And when what they're trying to get through, to Lacey's point, is arguably the end of America. Right, right. Well, it's perversely, you know, the, when I see the New York Fed talk about uh, diversity and income inequality, when they're the engines of it. I mean, some of the... Yeah. Some of the perverse um, irony is obviously lost on these people, but uh, it, it, it's obviously potentially very serious. And given the fact that next, I mean, we're not doing a really good job of being able to get the economy back on track, whether you think we should lock down more or lock down less. The fact of the matter is we've allowed the politicians to make all the decisions. They're the least capable. And now they're micromanaging yeah. managing every aspect of every business in America. And then you've got the possibility for lawsuits and what that's going to do to business. So all I'm trying to suggest is the chance for the economy to be really poor for quite a while is there. And that would be a precondition, I think, to have us get sent down this path. And that's why I think it's worthwhile to remember that those two things together. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. The other, the other part of it that's really interesting, obviously, is is he's right. This would force a digital currency, and it, and it makes you wonder. Obviously, the the Federal Reserve is uh, and refuses to allow any currencies to compete with the dollar. Um, so one wonders what would happen to things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, other digital currencies at the point where the Fed have imposed or the U.S. government have imposed its own digital currency. I I don't really see it necessarily, I mean, maybe I'm missing it, but I don't really see it as necessarily a digitally, a digital currency. I see it as a digitally delivered currency, which is different. We have basically, did we are, our money in the bank is basically digital now. And you're just, you know, this would just be a faster way to move it around, but it wouldn't, we wouldn't go to the store necessarily and pay in uh, Fed coin as, a spo- as opposed to green paper. No, but you'd pay on your credit card. It would just get, you know, you'd right. be basically cashless. It would be but a cashless society. It, it would move, move, move in that direction for sure. But anyway, the, the, we don't need to get into the, the gory details no, of that. That's, that's, that's so, one for another day. So far down the road, hopefully. We'll, we'll get into that another day. But yeah, it, it was definitely worth adding this little bit to the podcast. But the timing of that was, I guess, unfortunate. It didn't come out 24 hours earlier, but uh, but it was very good of Lacey to, to take the time to send us his, his very thoughtful reply. I, I, I agree. It, and, and his very, very well-worded and thoughtful reply, yes. It's amazing. I... I Every time I listen to Lacey, I, I never have a camera in front of me because like, we're doing this on Zoom. People are only going to hear the audio we're seeing on Zoom. And so I actually have the chance to look at my face and I concentrate so hard when I'm listening to him because it's, it's such an extraordinary repository of knowledge. And, and when you talk to Lacey, he's the guy that makes me realize how complicated economics is, you know, because everybody spends their life trying to simplify it. And, and Lacey will tell you, what it is rather than 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 what you kind of want to hear you know and it's it's unbelievably he kind of put people like him that have studied what they've studied make economics sound like a legit science right exactly whereas most of what we all hear that is considered economics is just pablum it's yeah the weight of the crowd believing the same thing that already happened in extrapolation and when you look at the depth of the knowledge and understanding that he brings 
to the table. It's a total different, totally different picture than most. I mean, obviously there are yeah. other economists in the world that are good at what they do, but um, there's a certain rigor there the, that uh, I find yeah. missing in a lot of things. I think it was interesting that several times he mentioned the potential for the Fed to have its charter changed or said yeah. differently, turn liabilities into money. And he mentioned it enough times that it's, it sounds to me like that's one worry that's out there on his yeah. radar for sure. And it seems to me that that um, um, Russell Napier's observation that if these governments start getting into the subsidization of the of, uh, and do the loan guarantees, that's sort of a backdoor way of turning those liabilities into money. But we'll have to see how far this goes. Yeah. So far, it's a bunch of one-off programs, and whether it gathers steam or whether they just go in and rewrite the Federal Reserve Act, and they're they're, they're trying to get them to the, the lobbying effort amongst the liberals is to get the Fed to uh, try to work on diversity. Yeah, well, if they right. start doing stuff like that, then, then his worst fears, and I guess all of ours collectively, will be re realized. Well, and the ECB are taking on climate change now as part of their mandate. Right. So, forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. But but yeah, but this is it, right? This is, this is what's so fascinating because the the solutions that are required at this point, no matter you talk to to James, you talk to Russell, you talk to Mike Green, you talk to to Lacey, the solutions are getting more complex and more dramatic almost by the day, right? The things they're going to have to do to try and solve this problem now. Uh, because rewriting the Federal Reserve Act is a big one. I, I, don't, I think that'll be an easy one for them to do, frankly. I think that they'll do that in five minutes. Yeah. You know, the next time the market gets busted up badly, I mean, I, you know, I think that'll, that could easily happen. Um, what the, I think what the search is for, and he pointed out it in not so many words, is <clears throat> what everyone wants is a painless solution. Yes. You know, yeah, it's your like, point okay, was great, actually. Yes, yeah. we're, 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 yes, we're strung out on heroin, and, and yes, we tried alcohol, and 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 yeah, and some Percocet, but um, you know, now we're even more messed up than before. So, can you make it all go away without any pain? Yeah, that's that's kind of we've been kicking the can so long on so many different that that, that, that the the simple or not too painful solutions don't yeah. exist. It's a great point because we all know there is a very straightforward solution to all this, but. That's yeah. the part where people stop thinking that because we all know that it requires immense amounts of pain. You mean we should let the markets clear? Yeah, well, God forbid that should ever happen again, right? That would be the one thing they're trying to stop. But that, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, right, to talk to Russell and, and Lacey back to back. Um, you know, two guys yeah. with an extraordinary weight of intellect. It would be fun in a, in a, in a while down the road if it looks like the landscape is changing in, in some way to see if we could uh, cajole the two of them to come on together. Now, yeah. that would be something to listen to, I, I, particularly you know, I, if the landscape yeah. starts to change. You know? Yeah, exactly right. I give us a fighting chance of being able to convince them to do that. I think that would be interesting. Well, mate, we've, uh, we've reached the end of another episode. Um, we're racking them up now, and each one is, is more thought-provoking than the last. I'm, I'm loving this series. Yeah, me too. I'm, uh, I'm, this has been extremely educational for me. All right. Well, listen, thanks uh, Thanks to you for, for sticking with us and, and listening to this series. Uh, I'll make my usual plea. If you wouldn't mind taking a couple of minutes to rate and review us on iTunes, it would it would really help us. Um, uh, between now and the next episode, if you don't follow us already on Twitter, you can do that. Uh, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at FleckCap. Yes, he is. And he will be there tomorrow at the same name as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.